Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. We are a social species with a drive to attach for security, care, self-worth, emotion, regulation. Whereas many other species survive by running, flying, claws, talons, shells to protect them, our species survives by attaching to others for support. And we are all born prematurely in the sense that we require years of care to reach an age where we can survive on our own. So given the fact that our species thrived by developing tribal bonds and also that our species require so much care during our infant years to reach maturity to a point where we can thrive on our own, we were all built with a or we are all our brains are encoded with systems that create core drives to attach attachment is not the only drive we have we have a drive we have drives to exploration and aggression and uh, freud suggested we have drives to discharged libidinal energy but the primary drive of a human being is to attach to another human being for soothing care and so forth and when we get attention comfort expressed delight from another regularly it creates what's called a secure base what is a secure base it's a felt sense that someone is available who can reliably process the emotional events of our life. When we have someone there that we feel we can go to, to stay with us and help us make sense of our life, help us feel safe again when we're overwhelmed, help us parse the strange events of life, create a and, and address our loneliness or a sense of isolation. When there's somebody there that we can turn to, our attachment system switches off. And the other systems, such as exploring systems, allowing us to explore the world, social engagement systems where we can develop new bonds with other people, switch on. So... In other words, we all have this core attachment drive, and when it's met, when we do have somebody available that helps us process and maintain our nervous system at a uh, homeostatic, relaxed, calm level, then all the other systems can switch on, allowing us to be creative, allowing us to connect with a wider array of social affiliations, allowing us to develop new skills and tools. We seek attachment, especially during stressful events in our life. When we feel overwhelmed, lonely, our sympathetic nervous system 
flips on to a vigilant, I have to do something, I'm in danger or I'm overwhelmed or I'm in a difficult position. And when the sympathetic nervous system switches on, it can then switch on the attachment system. When our attachment needs are met, key regions of the brain, the caudate nucleus, the ventral tegmental upregulator, project dopamine secretion, and especially in the left hemisphere, which makes us feel rewarded and safe and secure. And uh, the, the hypothalamus secretes oxytocin, which develops bonds, and vasopressin, which emphasizes interpersonal experience. And the dorsal anterior cortex uh, upregulates endorphins and serotonin. And when endorphins go up, then the stress hormones stop being secreted. So a lot of good things happen when we attach to another human being for security and support. If our early attachments are dependable, the child will associate attachment with someone who's reliable, predictable, responsive. And the child will grow up to an adult who seeks those qualities in a partner. So once again, if in early life, the figures that provide us with our attachment needs, i.e. parents, caregivers, siblings, are reliably available, responsive when we express our emotional states, if they're soothing in their demeanor, then those are the exact same attributes that we will look for or associate with, with attachment. And they, these experiences create what Bowlby and so many others call internal working models. They're models of who we look for for love and care. They're unconscious. They're not conscious. They're unconscious. We're not aware of these models, but they they determine who we gravitate towards when we're seeking a bond or care. If, on the other hand, our early attachments are unreliable, often unavailable, insecure, unpredictable, a parent that's sometimes attentive and responsive and other times completely caught up in other issues, a parent who's only available partially due to a divorce or workaholism or other issues, or a parent who might be uh, at times prone to disruptive behaviors, people who are prone to rage, depression, anxiety, or people who have addictions, then the child will associate um, attachment with entirely different attributes. Let's look at the two most likely outcomes. If an early attachment figure is sometimes soothing and available and other times unavailable or not soothing or preoccupied or disengaged, the child will grow up to be anxious 
They will associate attachment figures with unreliability, excitement, unpredictable figures, and they will gravitate towards people who are emotionally unavailable. They will be constantly chasing, chasing people who are exciting and charismatic, but are not people who meet their primary attachment needs of reliability, predictability, availability. They've associated attachment with drama and with, uh, uh, like a, a, a dra- uh, not only a drama, but a, a roller coaster ride. If, on the other hand, early attachments are completely disappointing, the child will associate, uh, will grow up avoidant, and will associate attachment with being trapped, disappointment, engulfment. And this child will grow up to be an adult that switches off their their attachment system altogether and will seek distance rather than uh, committing to intimacy with another partner. Very often these are people who are prone to self-reliance in the extreme. These are people who very often spend a lot of time engaged in solo activities, whether playing video games, long-distance running, uh, rock climbing for hours or whatever, engaged in occupations that don't rely or don't involve other people. In essence, their early attachment experiences were so disappointment they switched off entirely that system. These are people who can still explore the world and they certainly put their career above other people, but ultimately they're prone to depression because part of the avoidant technique of surviving is to essentially numb themselves of so many of their needs and emotions associated with core attachment. Let's atta- let's return to the anxious individuals for a moment, or for actually the bulk of the rest of the talk. Uh, the anxious individuals not only associate attachment with unreliable, exciting, unpredictable figures, their attachment system switches on forever. It's constantly on because they've attached or they've become preoccupied by somebody who's only partially emotionally available or sporadically present or prone to suddenly pull back their empathy and their care. These are people who become fixated on other individuals. Eventually, their their interest in exploring and developing other affiliations with friends and other groups falls well behind their fixation on figures, and they have a tendency through what's called repetition compulsion to constantly be seeking love from relationships that cannot provide these the real core needs of security. To prevent abandonment, anxious people become preoccupied and ruminate on the people, on the figure they're interested in. They will avoid stating their needs explicitly 
and they will often early on in the relationship trade sex for intimacy out of a desire to address their attachment needs as soon as possible. Unfortunately, if you if you're unfamiliar with attachment, uh, one of the saddest outcomes is that. Anxious individuals almost invariably become preoccupied with avoidance, not with people who are secure. That's because the avoidant individual eerily reproduces the early childhood experience of somebody who's not reliably available. So, preoccupation visualizing, thinking about another person that we have a romantic interest in or uh, any interest in, at first feels very pleasant because at first it releases all of these positive neurotransmitters and um, peptides such as, again, dopamine and oxytocin and vasopressin and it upregulates even serotonin at first. So... Early on, even if the figure is unreliable, early on, preoccupation, thinking a lot about another human being when they're not available, is agreeable. It feels good. But, and even more so, it's a nice distraction from all of the other stressors in life that mount up in adult, uh, in our adult lives. Other issues such as problems at work, problems with one's family, with one's finances, disappointment with one's career or job, all of these issues fall, blur into a a sort of haze in the background when one is preoccupied with another human being. Fantasizing about others is also the way we switch on an attachment to someone who's not available. So classically, someone who has insecure attachment will, or someone who's lonely, of course, will interact with another person and it will be pleasant. And they will, when they're alone and feeling disappointed or their life is stressful or there's a series of uh, challenging events, they will, as a way to regulate those emotions, they will then fantasize about this person that they've met or visualize that person. And that very action of using the another person's image in our mind to mitigate our disappointment or our stress switches on our attachment system towards this person even though they're not available. This is why it's so important, by the way, in early relationships to be very mindful about not allowing ourselves to slip into rumination about someone we might be dating or interested in until we are quite certain through a series of repeated 
long, you know, a long series of repeated interactions where over time we see that they are reliable, available, that the experience we get is one of security. Um, I'm going to use a weird analogy now because, uh, it, I don't know, I, I sometimes when I'm explaining this to people in the counseling work, um, it's helpful. When I was talking with a realtor who was saying that the primary mistake that people make when they're apartment hunting, looking for a place to rent is uh, or buy, is that they will go to a bunch of apartments and they'll have a very clear budget in mind. And then they'll stumble upon one place that is far above their budget, hundreds upon hundreds of dollars over their, the, the maximum they can comfortably afford on rent. But they'll go to an apartment and they'll fall in love with it. And they'll, in their minds, move into the apartment. They'll visualize where they place the sofa, and they visualize themselves cooking dinner in it, and they become, they essentially move into the place in their mind. And what this does is it switches on all the same systems that uh, reward us for attachment. It switches on those systems in the brain, the ventral tegmental region and the cortic nucleus secretes dopamine as a reward. Voila, we found a place and uh, it upregulates um, the other neurotransmitters, uh, glutamates that create excitement, etc. The problem is we actually haven't rented the place. We can't even afford it. And so what that does is it leads to a state where every other apartment that we see will no longer be interesting. It will no longer be exciting. We've now become fixated on a place that we can't actually afford. Well, preoccupation in relationships is almost the exact same event. We meet somebody who's not romantic, not emotionally available. We, for whatever reason, start thinking about that person when they're not there. It switches on the attachment system, and now every other candidate who is emotionally available, who could actually meet our needs, who could actually be there and create a sense of uh, soothing and express delight in our life, is no longer interesting. Tragically, I see this so often in my work, where I meet with people who have... Uh, been engaged in fantasy bonds with unavailable figures for repeatedly one after another relationship going back years. And whenever they meet somebody who is available, who is interested in having a relationship with them, who does want to do the hard work, they're not interested because they've become fixated on another figure. And so they don't essentially, uh, they've, because they've so associated attachment with unreliability and unpredictability and drama and sometimes fireworks and sometimes being alone and because they've, they've made these tragic associations, 
when they meet someone who is secure, they won't be interested. They'll either be preoccupied with another human being or the secure individual's very reliability and predictability won't trigger any desire in the anxious individual. Uh, besides underlying anxi- uh, anxious attachment, loneliness is a huge figure in preoccupation. If one has unmet social needs, a friendly social interaction can so easily be misconstrued as some romantic interest. We can f- wind up dwelling on brief social interactions and magnifying the importance of these interactions until it seems as if a waitress's or waiter's friendly smile is some kind of invitation to uh, dating or attachment or getting our needs met. Rumination, preoccupation, thinking about someone who is not available turns into an addiction in that it's automatic, intrusive, Eventually, people have no control over how repetitive the thoughts are. One's life becomes smaller and smaller. One, uh, it disrupts our normal interests and activities. And it becomes what started out as pleasant. The preoccupied thoughts, the obsessive thoughts, now become anything but pleasant. They become a constant reminder of a figure who's not available or who's not actually in our life providing us with our core needs for soothing care, uh, attention, um, and uh, expressed delight. Someone who looks happy to see us. Eventually, when ruminating and preoccupation and obsession turns into an addiction... Our thoughts will become binary, longing for reciprocation from the object of one's affections. So visualizing, hoping that they'll want to choose us will alternate with fear of rejection. And invariably what happens then is one becomes awkward and timid and has a loss of words when they're actually in the presence, once again, of the person they're fixated on or preoccupied with. Um, There's a tendency to idealize people at first, but then as the fear of rejection becomes stronger, the idealization turns into something entirely different, an anger or paranoia, or jealousy, or disappointment. So what started out as a pleasant fantasy can, over time, turn into a state where one feels rejected by someone who was actually never fully uh, committed to a relationship. And it can lead to a sense of Uh, one has been cheated or mistreated. The terror of rejection 
unable to express one's needs in the presence of the actual individual one is obsessed with can then lead people to a state of frantically searching for cues, analyzing text messages that mean that have no hidden meanings. I've had people in counseling read me verbatim text messages they've received from somebody they went on one date with and will scrutinize it like it's the Torah that they are meditating over for hours. They'll read these things like that. So she said, huh, what's up? What do you think that means? And I'll go, I think they're asking what's up. I don't, I, I, I don't know. She's like, no, they're, no, it must mean something more than that. It's, they're not as excited as they should be to talk to me. Or the last time they sent me a message, it had an emoji, but this time it doesn't have an emoji. I cannot tell you, by the way, how many times I've heard that, uh, that, that, uh, when people are obsessed, they can even drill down to details where they are counting how many emojis the figure that they're interested in has sent them. And they will note that even the character counts are a little shorter from one message to another. So the, the, the fear of rejection leads to this frantic searching for cues because... Uh, Tragically, when one is caught up in preoccupation, the ability to simply address and state one's needs to the for the Buddha, of course, has some noble truths that are universal and cover how suffering occurs in life. And if we look at them, we see there's an uncanny accuracy that describes mental preoccupation and obsession and infatuation. The Buddha in the first noble truth notes that in life there are stressful events that are inevitable, not just old age, sickness, and death, but he also goes on to list things like being separated from the loved, uh, not getting what we want, and feelings of longing and grief and sadness, loneliness. So these emotional states are inevitable in life. In the second noble truth, the Buddha notes that while these experiences are difficult to be with, we could actually live happy, productive lives if we simply accepted that life contains these first noble truths. Again, old age, sickness, and death are inevitable, not getting what we want being separated from others at times, feelings of grief, sadness, loneliness, despair are at times inevitable. But instead of accepting that life has difficult experiences, individuals will crave, which is called tana in early Buddhism, and attach to anything they can 
to distract their attention from these inevitable painful events. So for some of us, we will attach to dead objects, shopping, food. Um, we'll attach to gambling. We'll attach to uh, empty sex. We'll attach to um, video games. We'll attach to pornography. We'll attach to whatever is out there to paper over or suppress our awareness of the underlying disappointments that life invariably has. Then we will cling to these false attachments and not let go. The Buddha lists different things we cling on to, but one of them is clinging, all of these things we cling on to, not just one of the four, all of them, he notes, are unreliable. They are sometimes uplifting, but generally over time, they are disappointing. The Buddha never stated that he was against attaching to other individuals. That's a myth. People think that in Buddhism, attachment is a bad uh, practice. Far from it. The Buddha, in fact, said in suttas on Mita, or friends, and uh, wise companions, the Buddha said that the entire path is founded on having secure attachments in our life, having individuals in our life who are actually available who are wise, who are caring, who are comforting, who are soothing. So the Buddha wasn't against attachment. He was against attaching to unreliable figures or unreliable sources of soothing. In fact, the Buddha, when he was asked by Ananda in the what's known as the Half Sutta, the Buddha was asked by his associate Ananda, is it true that half of the spiritual life is based on uh, having friends and people in our life that we can depend on. And the Buddha says, no, it's the entirety of the path. So attachment isn't the issue. The issue is when we choose for attachments, figures, people who are not predictable. There's actually a, uh, Gottman came up with a list of what we should be looking for in our attachments. It's called uh, CARP, C-A-R-R-P. And he used it as, I'm um, seeing if I can remember it, uh, consistency, availability, reliability, there's another R, and predictability, uh, responsive. I think that's it. So I think it's uh, consistent, available, reliable, responsive, and predictable. If you notice, those words are all pretty much the same thing over and over again. They're just basically saying someone who's there, who's who we can depend on for soothing interest, care. And so, yet so many of us, when I ask, okay, 
uh, to uh, people I work with, what are you looking for in a partner? The answers will be not reliability, availability, consistency, responsiveness. They'll say, I want somebody who's got a great sense of humor and who's, you know, perhaps attractive, athletic, somebody who loves to travel, somebody who is dynamic, charismatic, somebody who's exciting. In essence, these are not bad attributes, but to put them first, to put them as the focus, is to assure again and again that our needs will not be met. So, in the Dharma, the Buddha talks about the importance of renunciation as the path, as a way forward, which means to renounce, put down, put aside, and not engage in the activities that are addictive, that paper over or lead to the compartmentalization of the underlying emotional loneliness, pain, disappointment, frustrations of life, and to be able to turn to face what's really there beneath these frantic quests for unreliable figures or objects to fill us up, then we turn our attention to finding that which is reliable, that which is consistent. So in terms of practices that address this underlying predilection, these internal working models that have associated attachment with uh, figures that are exciting, dramatic, charismatic, funny, but are not available, what we would do is visualize reliable, available attachment figures and to address the lack of an internal secure base, what we do is we learn to create the somatic experience of what it is like to be in a secure partnership. And even if you are in a relationship that is going well, where you feel a degree of commitment, I still would strongly uh, endorse the practice that we're going to do in our meditation as a wonderful way to remind ourselves of what our true needs really are and what it feels like when we our true needs are met. So with that, uh, I'm going to stop blabbering. I hope that you found something in there informative. And then what we're going to do is we're going to do a practice that integrates some recent tools from attachment-based psychology and Buddhist, early Buddhist tools together. We're going to be merging a visualization of 
what a secure relationship would be like, along with a visualization of what a secure attachment figure would look like. And we'll use the early Buddhist uh, daily reflection tools, especially of Deva Nusati, and mix it with um, some visualization, along with uh, we'll do some soothing in the meditation. And hopefully this will be a experience that is um, uh, useful. So thanks for listening, and find a really comfortable seated position. I should mention that if you'd like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, um, the Venmo, if you have the means to, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC. So that's Dharma Punks NYC. And I'm going to just close my eyes and uh, just. Uh, Start the process of soothing, landing in my body. And so I'm going to just start by taking a nice in-breath. And while I do that, I'm going to squinch the muscles in my face, tight, clenching. And then as I breathe out, I'm going to release the cranial uh, nerves, I'm going to have them release and allow my face to fall into a relaxed, neutral expression that doesn't require any effort to maintain. I'm going to allow my mouth to have a flat, relaxed state where nothing is pinched or tight. I'm going to release my jaw so that there's no clenching. And I'm going to encourage the eyes in the eye sockets to relax as if they're floating in two warm pools of water. And just, I've found over decades of practice that if my eyes relax and stop bouncing about behind my eyelids, that the mind begins to relax with it. So I'm going to take another full in-breath. I'm going to lift my shoulders up, and I'm going to rotate them back. And then as I breathe out, I'm going to drop my shoulders And in rotating the shoulders back and dropping them, I find that it will open up the chest, create a lot of room for the breath. And also when my shoulders are back, I've uh, found that it helps me maintain a nice balanced upright position. And also the one primary region of the vagal nerve, which is associated with down-regulating the nervous system, is right there. And if we open up the chest, 
we can help tone the vagal nerve if we do it in a way that doesn't feel too uh, vulnerable. And then for my third breath, I'm going to breathe in. I'm going to like expand my belly like I'm bringing the breath entirely into the abdomen. And then as I breathe out and soften the belly, I'm going to relax, soften. I found that the two surest ways to regulate one's affect, one's state of uh, emotional disposition, the surest way to not become reactive in life, but to remain responsive and calm is to keep the exhalations as long as possible, not cutting them off. Exhalations are associated with the synaptic, the release of, excuse me, uh, acetylcholine in the vagal nerve, which helps tone it. But also the second practice is keeping the belly soft and pliant. When the belly is soft and pliant and the breath is very slow, it's almost impossible to be triggered by others, by difficult experiences. And it's almost, it's very, very hard to have a relaxed, pliant belly and a long, smooth exhalation and be hijacked by one's reactive fight-flight emotions. So just those two simple techniques, keeping the belly soft and pliant, the vagal nerve in the chest even open, and the exhalations as long and smooth as possible. are keys to self-soothing and auto-regulation. And then we can add on top, making sure that the face, the muscles associated with the cranial nerves remain relaxed. If you want, you can find in the sensory landscape surrounding you, find soothing, predictable stream of sounds, perhaps sounds associated with the evening, crickets or distant cars, whatever is available. And we'll just sit for a while in silence, just staying with that which is soothing. Every time your attention is pulled into a landscape of that's entirely imagined or drifts back to preoccupations, unresolved issues, planning, events that are not 
happening right here and now. Just bring your awareness back and land it on something in your environment that's soothing. If you're meditating with your eyes open, find a soothing visual in your environment. If you're meditating with your eyes closed, find a sensation in the body which is soothing or sound or repeat a phrase in your mind. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Or I love you, keep going. This is in so many ways just this practice of bringing our awareness back again and again to what's happening right here and right now is one of the most effective antidotes to preoccupation, infatuation, obsession, repetitive thoughts, just learning to soothe, training the mind to stay present.
And uh, now for second practice, visualizing being in a secure partnership where our attachment needs are met. So even if you are in a happy relationship where you feel that your your partner is available, reliable, caring, attentive, soothing. In this practice, we're not going to focus on what this figure looks like. So you, you, you're not going to be using any person in your life. You're going to right now visualize yourself sometime in the future in a very domestic setting where you have the sense that somewhere close by is another individual who's there, who's caring, interested, compassionate, empathetic, who expresses delight when they see you. They're not too close that you feel claustrophobic, nor too far that you feel abandoned or alone. You don't have any sense that they want to leave, nor do you have any sense that they are giving you too little space. This person is just right in how close they are. And you don't have to visualize what they look like. Just try to create the sense of what this experience would be like. And this other individual doesn't have to be a romantic figure. It could be a companion, a friend. Someone that's just available. You can imagine yourself doing something associated with a relaxing domestic scene that would be associated with partnership. Cooking a meal, feeling the sense of another being there, lying on a couch on a weekend afternoon, catching up with the news or just relaxing together. Again, don't visualize what the person looks like. Just create a scene where all of your attachment needs are met and get to know in your body what the felt sense of being secure is like. For those of us who are anxious, these practices very slowly, if we repeat it over and over again, a little bit each day, be, are capable of ingraining the qualities of secure attachment and overriding the old damaged models 
associated with disappointing attachments early on in life. So at this point, I'm going to ring the bowl and just take your time transitioning from these reflections and recollections and visualizations. Try to bring with you any sense of ease or comfort or whatever has been conjured by these practices.